I believe in the United States of America. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. And to the Republic. In one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. One nation. One God. I therefore believe it is my duty to my country to love it. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. To support its constitution. Stand for the word of God. To obey its laws. It is essential that we obey God's law. A good government protects and provides for the people. As meeting the material needs of the masses through the full power of centralized government. My God shall supply all your needs. Welcome to the show. Would you like to hear a podcast? Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua and today's episode will be a second one on education as a broad topic and doing this comparison between the time frame of the Middle Ages and the Reformation and current times that we are living in now. The episode that we have today will focus on a few different aspects, specifically on how education was thought of in society, mostly during the Middle Ages and then coming up a little bit into the Reformation as well, touching on topics that I've mentioned before, things like the trivium, for example, and how we define truth and morality and different educational approaches, these types of things. And so that's what we have in store today. So the first topic to address will be what is the purpose of education? What is the goal? And there here is a difference between the earlier time periods historically and now, but also some similar parallels like usual. And so the difference I want to point out first is just that coming through the time period of the Middle Ages and through the Renaissance and into the Reformation, education was largely focused on building critical thinking skills, building leadership and rhetoric, and focusing on morality. It was all about creating a good citizen, a good person, building virtue and justice and things like this. That was the goal of getting educated. If you wanted to get a job, then you would go through an apprenticeship. You would go through the guild system. You would go through some other format in order to get your job, and you would be educated in something that related to the field you were getting into, to the job that you wanted, that kind of thing. And so that was the path to take if you wanted a job specifically. But if you specifically wanted to get educated, that was fairly separate from getting a job. And it was all about being educated and being a well-rounded individual. You have the idea of a Renaissance man coming into the, this time period of the Renaissance, obviously. And this was someone that was well-studied in many different fields and could tie a lot of different things together and understand things very well, was a good student of history and the classical works this kind of thing. This was the goal of being an educated person. And a lot of this was tied to religion in this time period. Theology played a big role. I've talked about how the role of politics today and looking at things as being political issues is the equivalent of theology during this time period previously, where everything was a theological issue, and that was the main focus. Well, as we look at education, it was no different. But as we look at this uh, point of what is the goal of education and it being 
education, being an educated person um, and building these skills that I mentioned. If we look today, what is the goal of education? Well, it largely is to get a job or at least to get a better job. It's not necessarily that you won't get a job without an education. It's that many people believe that you won't get a good job without a degree. That is kind of a prerequisite in today's world. And that is the goal for a lot of people to especially go to college and to further their education. But also high school, if you don't have your high school diploma, then your job opportunities are even lower a lot of times. And so getting a job is one of the big focuses in education today. So that would be a big difference between this time period of the Middle Ages and coming through the Renaissance and the Reformation and comparing that to nowadays. There's a big difference in why do you go to school? Now, there's also a big difference between what school was then and now. And I've talked about that in the history of education during season one. You can go back and review that material for more on that subject. But looking at these aspects today, there's this difference of why do you get a formal education, but there are also some major parallels like usual. And so with that, education then was all about, like I said, things like critical thinking and leadership and teaching morality. These were the goals. And so even though these are more, I guess, high-minded ideals than getting a job, uh, there still is a large parallel today because even though the top priority for most people in furthering their education formally is to get a better paying job, the goal of the institutions often is stated, at least, to equip people to think and to lead and to be good citizens. These types of things are largely stated. The, the idea is just very different. So during this historical period, the goal was to be a good citizen. But the idea of a good citizen was someone who had a lot of these skills that you got from the trivium method often in the earlier time period, at least, of grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And this was the goal of someone that could think critically, could express their opinions in a way that proved that what they thought was true and convinced somebody of that fact. You had a lot of different aspects of tying together things like philosophy and science and theology and how all these things came together to form the knowledge that you had, your true education. Whereas today, critical thinking might not look the same. Now, college specifically is definitely thought of as a place where you get higher level thinking, but that thinking can often be highly curated by somebody else. It's not necessarily that you are taught completely how to think for yourself, how to research on your own, come to your own conclusions, how to look at multiple different perspectives and figure out how they are intertwined, how they differ, how they're similar, how you can weed out truth from uh, fallacy, for example, these are things that uh, would have formerly been thought of as critical thinking, whereas now it's more thinking on a higher level in a specific field, on a specific subject, in a specific way. It is a lot more curated. So it is still higher level thinking or critical thinking to an extent, but a lot less individualized, whereas formerly it was something that was very individualized. You are an educated individual and you are building that on your own individually versus in today's universities, 
you are expected to be an educated individual and that same aspect of critical thinking is expected but in this different way where you are expected to be able to think on a very high level and think critically on your specific field that you majored in that you are focused on. For example, if you are a law student, you are going to be expected to be able to think on a very high level and to have a high degree of critical thinking skills in your specific field of law. It's not just in law as a whole, it's in a specific aspect, a specific area and field of law. So you probably will not know a whole lot about constitutional law, and you may not know a lot about criminal law, but you may know a lot about insurance law or whatever it is that you specialize in. And that is your focus. That is where your critical thinking is developed. That's where your education is developed in a very segmented, specialized way. And obviously, there are pros and cons about this. We've talked about this a lot. But the point is that critical thinking is still a goal of education. So on one hand, that is a parallel, but it's just very different in how that's applied. I would say the same thing is true of leadership, whereas leadership was thought of at one point in this concept of leading people and guiding them on a virtuous path towards justice and individual freedom and education, these types of things. Nowadays, leadership is more management. It's how do you manage people? How do you manage an organization? How do you get people to perform certain tasks in a certain way, in a way that is efficient and productive and effective? Management, I would argue, is very different than a classical view of leadership. And so even though technically, you do still have this parallel of leadership being taught in education, formal education. It's definitely a different breed of leadership. Finally, morality would be something that was highly focused on historically. And I remember in school being taught things like building character and what does that mean? And these are moral issues. So this is something that is definitely still taught in schools and educational facilities in today's world. But what morality is, obviously, is very different. So in this historical time period, whether you're looking at a more humanist perspective or a scholastic perspective or however that education is formatted, it was still focused on theology and they got their sense of morality from the Bible. So they had a set prescription for what is right and what is wrong, what is good, what is bad what is morality, they could figure this out. And you often could go back to the classical Greeks. You could look at Plato and Aristotle, and this is more the secular world of how do we figure out what virtue is, what is justice, what is right, what is wrong. And these were the things that were debated, and they were still debated. There were different opinions on how to figure out these things, but they definitely did have some more concrete ideas and texts to go back to and had a more solid view of what morality was. Whereas in today's schools, you are still taught how to be a good person and building character and what is morality, but a lot of it is very relative. And you are actually taught that in school. I had a class on that, on ethics. And one of the main things they talked about is that ethics are relative. Everybody has a different sense of what is ethical and what is ethical can change given different circumstances and in different cultures. And so 
all of this is relative. It's not that this is right and this is wrong. It's, well, in this scenario, this is right. But in a different scenario, that would be right. And in a different scenario, that same thing would be very wrong. And so it's all relative. And so while you do have morality taught as one of the goals of education, uh, building character, and getting someone to be a good person, a good citizen, what that means and the definition of that is very different today than it was prior. So again, we have these parallels, but even though they are similar, they are also very different in how they're applied and what their real goals are. And a lot of this I would tie back to the parallel that I've made of politics versus theology, whereas everything was based on theology, including education. That's where they grounded their sense of morality. That's where they figured out what a good citizen was. These were the ideas that they were wrestling with, and that tied together all these different subjects from science to history to philosophy to classic literature. They were tying in how Aristotle's views were in line with biblical principles and revealed truth from the Bible and how all these things were interrelated, and it was all through theology. And today, you have a very similar thing. All of these things are tied through politics, political issues. They are all political issues. Even just what you are taught and how you are taught it is political. You decide what you can teach in school and what you can't based on a political view and what is politically correct versus what it used to be is what is theologically correct and what is your view on theology and the Bible. And so these are very different. I'm not saying one is good, bad, better, worse. I'm just saying this is the way it is. There is this direct parallel that we are making here, and it does play out very consistently. So going along with this, it was these religious institutions that really kept the spark of a truly liberal education alive. They were the ones that safeguarded a lot of these classical texts, and they were the ones that were keeping this idea of getting an education up in society and in the culture. You got an education through a monastery oftentimes or through a Christian university or one of these ways that were directly tied to the religious institutions of the day. And these would be the churches. This is the Western European world, the area of Christendom and Christianity. And so these were the institutions that were carrying these things onward. It was all based around this ideology. The ideology is what gave a reason for all these things. And so as I've mentioned just previous to this, this idea of theology tying everything together, it's this idea of having an ideology. And I've talked about that a lot on this podcast in general, the importance of an ideology, that that is how you get a society to be on board with itself, how you get different cultures to mesh and different agendas to correlate together and work towards a common goal. It is all about having an ideology. The If you go back to... William Henry Smith and his book Technocracy, he talks about how society has to be controlled without being controlled. And the way to do this is to build an ideology, a common cause. And if everybody is oriented towards this common national goal, then you can control that society in a sense without actually actively controlling that society. It's all about having an ideology. I used the example of Rojava in the Middle East, in northern Syria, and 
and how the Kurds and the other people around there that formed that autonomous society, how they were able to do this. And it worked very well with many different cultures blending together in the middle of an area that was very against everything they stood for. The Middle East and that area, their surrounding peoples are very against things like women's rights and full democracy and things of this nature. And yet that's what Rojava stood for. And that's what they were doing. That's how they built their society. And this was largely because they had a common ideology. They had a common view and a common goal. And that's what really drove them and bound them together. And so this is a very important thing. And we see that that is how education really thrived, not only survived, but thrived, was through this common ideology and these common goals. And this was all religious at that time. And nowadays, we have these common political goals that are keeping a lot of the debates alive and pushing a lot of the science, even a lot of these things that, as I mentioned before, science was used to prove the Bible. History was used to prove that the Bible was accurate and consistent. And they were trying to take these historical philosophers and tie them into biblical revelation. In the Bible, it does say that things are revealed to everyone just through nature and through creation, through reason, and that Jesus was the Logos. That's how he is described in the book of John. And this idea of the Logos was a Greek idea going back to this idea that there was an entity, a a reason of the universe that ordered all things. There's a reason why nature is consistent and ordered and operates in a specific way. And it must have been, according to many Greek philosophers, it must have been some entity that bound all this stuff together. There must have been a reason for this. You have this idea of intelligent design. They also went back to the first mover argument that something can't come from nothing. So no matter how far back you go, going back through creation, originally it had to start with something. And that something would have been, the original something would have been the Logos. And that's the idea that then is carried forth in the Bible. And so throughout this time period of the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, the Reformation, they're going back and even tying together these secular philosophies, especially going back to the ancient Greeks, and tying that in with the Bible and what is revealed in Scripture to them. And so all of this is tied together by this common ideology, and it really pushes a lot of these things. You have big movements like the Renaissance and like the Reformation, and a lot of these are focused around going back to these ancient texts and really digging into them. A lot of it is highly focused on education and bringing alive these ideas and these philosophies and so a lot of this is has its roots, at least, in this ideology of theology. And so we can see similar things going on today with political movements and ideologies over political issues and topics where there is a lot of stuff that's going on. People are going to science to prove political ideas. You can look at climate change, for example, as a very big one. Um, You've got literature, and it's not necessarily literature in today's world. I would say broadly media, that media is very political if you really start to dissect what the media is producing, what entertainment is out there, everything from video games to TV shows to movies to YouTube, uh, all over the place, all different forms of media. It is highly political. And if you know what to look for, you can see 
a lot of these trends and ideologies that are getting pushed. And a lot of this is pushing forward a lot more literature, so to say, a lot more media. And a lot of this content is something that's motivated by political views. A lot of it is ideological from a political standpoint. Now, the epitome of this ideology of theology would be the Reformation. That That is the big event that we're talking about here. And through the Reformation, when you are looking at some of the impacts on the world of education, it created a need for true and accurate and defendable history. Historiography really changed with the Reformation because they needed evidence and facts and logic in order to dispute the old ingrained order. It can't just be a fad. It can't just be a little bit of clickbait information. This was a big deal. Everything, like I have said, revolved around theology. It was all revolved around the religious order. The church had a huge role to play in society at this point in time. And so to go against the church was a very big deal. And you couldn't just go against it with uh, convincing speech or with... uh, some wordy language that you put together that sounded really good and convinced some people or some sort of fad that moved through that people were all about for a short period of time and they didn't have a lot of depth to their thinking there. You couldn't have this. You had to have something that was true, that was accurate, that was defendable. And that's what was produced through these needs stemming from the Reformation movement. And that had a big impact on education. And this specifically relates to history. You couldn't just pull some text where someone says that something happened and references some other person that said that the same thing happened who referenced some other person. No, you had to get some sort of evidence. You had to have facts. You had to make sure that all of this was logically consistent. You had to be able to prove your case. That is what true history is. And this idea, this concept was largely solidified during this time period of the Reformation just out of necessity. They had to have that. And if you look at some of the movements today, I mentioned that all of this is political now, not theological. Well, you've got two sides here that that I would highlight that I've talked about a lot, and that would be on one side, more of the conspiracy or contrarian viewpoints, the anti-state viewpoint. Well, if they're going against the state, which I have already said is the parallel to the church in this historical time period, you've got to come at the state with a lot more than just some crazy ideas that sound really good. Or, you know, you caught the state or some state actor doing some really bad thing and bam, we caught you. Okay, now everybody's going to be anti-state. Perfect. We won. No, that's not how it works. And you can't have some sort of fad. I would say maybe something like an Alex Jones and InfoWars was something that got really big and popular for a little while and kind of faded out and he was discredited at one point or many points. And so that was something that didn't really do it. That didn't solidify the movement, so to say. Even though a lot of people came on board with these types of views, these more anti-state views, anti-establishment views, through Infowars and through Alex Jones and through places like that. So I wouldn't say that it didn't have any impact whatsoever, but it wasn't going to be the movement or the big thing. Like during the Reformation, you couldn't just have one 
idea or catching the Pope doing one bad thing would not topple everything. That's not how it would work. You needed a lot more to that. You needed to solidify that a lot more. And so when you have these anti-state movements, the libertarian movement, the anarcho-capitalist movement, even the anarcho-communists, a lot of them go back to the facts of history, largely. So there is that parallel as well here. And they go back and say that, well, you know, we are taught in school that the reason why this war happened or this event happened or going back to the New Deal or whatever you want to go to in history, a lot of what you're taught in school really glosses over or downright contradicts what actually happened in the real motivations behind the scene. And so when you really dig into the history there, you have something that is a lot more substantial and that can really back up your argument if you're making an anti-state argument, because the reasons for a lot of the things in history that are very bad um, look very bad to the state. And I know I've talked a lot about different wars and how wars got started and false flag operations. You've got even like the CIA and M- MK Ultra and assassinations all around the world and just all kinds of stuff where the state is involved. And I think largely in today's world, people are on a surface level aware of these types of things. They expect politicians to be corrupt and the state does a lot of really bad things. But I think a lot of times it's more this political debate that, oh, well, that's the Democrats. They're the ones that are the evil ones. And then on the other side, oh, no, it's those warmongering Republicans. They're the ones that are ruining everything with their traditional conservative ways. They need to just go back to those times and leave us alone. Let us progress in society and whatever it is. It's this political issue. And a lot of that was going on in the Catholic Church. You had a lot of theological debates where it was one side versus the other side on many different issues. You had some um, issues that were very big and some that were just continually smoldering in the background. But the Reformation was very different. And so if we are going to have a modern digital Reformation, so to say, this would be something that would be very different than these minor debates of this left-right false dialectic. It is something completely outside of that. That's why I'm highlighting something like the libertarian perspective or the anarchist perspective, and that's a broad spectrum there. But um, all the groups from left to right that are anti-state, they need to do these same things, and they largely are. You can get a lot of really good information from these types of sources if you largely avoid the ones that are really hyping things up that are all about just the rhetoric from a more modern standpoint of convincing you of a specific argument, not necessarily proving that it is true, but something that just sounds really good and gets you worked up. Uh, That might have some impact, but that is not the movement, so to say. And I mentioned at the beginning of this little segment here that there were kind of two sides to the modern movement. And on one side, you have the anti-state side. On the other side, you would have the very pro-state side, but not necessarily a modern state. This would be where I'd bring in the idea of a technocracy. It is a centralized managing of society and its resources. It's uh, not necessarily what we think of as a modern state, but it is uh, the epitome of a large centralized bureaucratic organization running society. And so that is in many ways a parallel with the state. And so that's what we're going towards in today's society. We are in this age of science and an age of science is going back to science. It's looking at these things by using the scientific method and proving things with the COVID pandemic. 
a lot of science is being brought up, a lot of data, a lot of statistics, a lot of things that are highlighted and spouted in various forms of media that oftentimes are not necessarily true when you look at them in their proper context, but it is at least stated as expert advice and as true science. And just look at the data. This is what it says. And that's true of both sides. But when you look at the idea of a technocracy, that is the whole point, going back to accurate, defendable, logical views on history. That's the whole point of a technocracy. It's not necessarily history, but it's information as a whole, because the goal is to take data, to take information, and use that to manage society in the most efficient and effective way. And so in order to do this, you have to have really good data. And you're doing this based strictly off the data, strictly off the facts. It is a very evidence-based, fact-based, logic-based program here to run a society to manage all of their resources, to do all the things that a technate wants to do. And it, it goes back to this similar idea. And just like the anti-state philosophy and just like the technocratic philosophy, it is all based on an ideology. And that ideology is largely political. And so again, going back to the previous points there of everything being based off of an ideology historically, that ideology being one that is biblical or theological in nature. And yes, these things really are playing out in a very similar fashion, just with different pieces, different players, different um, focuses, different ideologies. It They're different. All the pieces are different, but a lot of the ways it's playing out are very similar. I've been going through the Foundation series by Isaac Asimov, and um, there's the concept in there, if you haven't read it, it's um, largely on psychohistory. It's this idea of looking at whole societies and movements throughout populations and what is likely to happen, basically being able to predict the future from a very macro perspective, looking at trends both economically and sociologically and psychologically and historically and all these things and being able to predict what will likely happen with a society in the long run. A lot of times this is hundreds or thousands of years out and how these societies will evolve and develop and what's going to happen and what are some of the big moves that are going to take place. You might not be able to predict what a specific person is going to do or what the very specific cause of the downfall of an empire will be. But you do know that the empire will fall and that these factors will contribute to that and it will happen roughly in this time period. So in a way, what I'm doing here is slightly psycho-historical, but um, not necessarily. Uh, it's, it's an interesting parallel to a lot of the research I've been doing. And so I've really enjoyed going through those books. I had gone through the first part of the series long ago, the robot novels, and there's a prequel trilogy and the true foundation series start off as a trilogy. Now I think it's five or six books or something, but I'm working my way towards the end of that now. And so, again, there, there's a lot of parallels there to what we're going through here, and it's really interesting. But I do want to make one final point here. And I've mentioned scholasticism and humanism, and I've mentioned that in at least one or two of the interviews that I did at the beginning of this season. And I want to mention that parallel here specifically because this is a very important thing. These were the movements related to education that were really going on here. Now, with scholasticism, you had the classic trivium and quadrivium, and they were largely focused on 
the Latin texts. So they had lost a lot of the Greek manuscripts and the Greek texts, a lot of the Greek thinkers, the classical ones like Cicero and Plato. They didn't have a whole lot of these. They did have Aristotle, but more than Aristotle, they had commentaries that were based on Aristotle. And so this was something like Thomas Aquinas, for example. And a lot of this was an education that was built around this classic trivium and quadrivium model. And they were focused on using... Uh, commentaries, so to say, to learn from. And so you would have all these different commentaries. Uh, Thomas Aquinas was a very big one, probably the biggest, and they would use that to educate. And that was their focus. Whereas with humanism, they went back to the original sources. It was more to the source documentation. So this was like after the fall of Constantinople, and you had a flood of classical Greek text. You had Petrarch going around and finding a lot of these works. And with this, they could go back to Cicero was a very big impact for the humanism movement. And you also had things like Plato, and they did go back to Aristotle. And a lot of these classic Greek thinkers were a really big focus for the humanists. And largely, they were focused on humanity, on the human and how the human related to God, because again, everything is based around theology. And so this was the contrast here, whereas the scholastics were looking at these specific things, these ideas, wrestling with these concepts, largely focusing on things like philosophy and using the trivium method. And a lot of these classical works were just part of the grammar aspect of the trivium. Whereas when you get into the humanities, a lot of it was focused on the human individual and how the individual acts and reacts to things and looking at source documentation for all these, really digging into a lot of the classic literature and learning from that directly. And that played a lot bigger part in education than with scholasticism. And so you had some differences and shifts from the scholasticism movement to the humanism movement, and they did overlap. It's not like it was just starkly one than the other, and they did operate at the same time in times, and they were both focused on building an education. They both did incorporate a lot of similar things, but there were also two different methods of going about getting an education and educating somebody. And so you had, with scholasticism to humanism, these different ideas of commentary to source documents, of Aquinas to Cicero and Plato, of Latin to Greek, of trivium logic, more anti-fallacy, to the humanism logic of more dishonest rhetoric, so to say, and I use dishonest not with a value judgment, but just more it wasn't about proving the truth, it was about proving your point, and that was more the humanism approach. And a lot of these parallels are things that I'm seeing today. I would probably compare the modern education system to scholasticism, and maybe the personal education movement that is enabled by technology like the internet as the movement towards humanism. So with the modern education system, the idea is that you go to a class, you have a textbook, and you have a teacher. Again, you are getting your information through commentary much more than the source documents. Instead of going back and reading multiple works of Plato, you are reading a book on Greek philosophy that pulls out excerpts from Plato and many other philosophers and talks about them. It's more commentary-centric than source documents. 
document-centric, and it doesn't mean you're only doing commentary, nor did it mean that historically. But the focus, the broad scope, was more oriented towards commentary than source documentation. Whereas if you look at the internet world, for example, me, as I do research in these different areas that I cover... I go back to the source documents. I'm reading reports from congressional investigations. I'm going back and actually reading Plato and Aristotle and some books from classic philosophers. I I can go back and get all this information a lot of times for free, and I can get it through the internet and audiobooks and different formats like this, which are available to us now through the technology that we have. And so this is very cool. And that's a movement, a shift in education. And I would say that it is more true education that I can get from source documentation than I am getting from the formal school system in a more commentary-centric format. Now, the shift from someone like Aquinas to people like Cicero and Plato would also be in line with this. It's the idea of going from the Latin to the Greek. So in the formal education system, you have more of the later thinkers in the later language, and it's more modernized, which is more of the scholastic approach. And the classical humanism approach from really out of the Italian Renaissance period, kind of that movement, That is much more about going back to the original, going back to Cicero and reading Cicero in Greek and Plato in Greek and going back again to the source documents. And that's more what I am able to do when I go back and do my studies and I use the technology of our day, the internet, to do this. There are shifts that are going on in people educating themselves and education in general. You have some big shifts with COVID-19 with going more towards remote learning options and online learning options. Now, a lot of those I would not personally be very fond of because it is largely just importing the classroom model and putting it in someone's home, and they're just doing it on their own home computer instead of in a classroom, and not much else is changing. But with the personal education and education in the way that I've talked about in this podcast, educating yourself, self-education, self-directed education even for kids, these are much more enabled now with the technology that we have and much more focused on this uh, humanism mentality than the scholastic mentality. And the cool thing, at least for me, is that seeing this and seeing these different approaches, I can then combine them together to get what I would consider an extremely good education in whatever area it is you're trying to educate yourself in. So if you take the view of going back to source documents and reading them in the context of how they were written and what the information was, you can get your information that way. But then you also take the idea of the trivium mentality of grammar logic rhetoric, as well as the idea of logic from a scholastic point of view as being, we are going to prove the truth, and then we are going to convince somebody of that truth that we have proven, instead of more of the marketing approach, the humanism approach of, you are going to come up with an argument and then prove that argument. And so these are two different things. And I would personally fall on the former category there of finding the truth through reason, logic, study, 
many different formats and ways of doing that, but finding the truth and then convincingly trying to put it out there and formulate that in my own mind and as I express it, and also going to some of the commentaries. So I may read Plato, but then read a few commentaries on Plato. And so I try to combine these two strategies and methods into a complete whole, whereas I would say in the education system today, that does happen at times, but largely that is not the case. And nor do I think it would be very practical to try to do that under the current system, the way it currently operates, that wouldn't really be doable. And so that's largely one of the reasons why they have more of a scholastic model. But as we sum up all of these different things, they all do relate like usual. And they relate to these shifts that are going on in today's world. Since we have this technology of the internet, we have access to information and source documentation. We have this drive to get true and factual and accurate history and information and data and the ability to do so. All of this is driven ideologically. And a lot of it is through this political spectrum of either politics or anti-politics, not necessarily just left-right politics, but sometimes it's politics or anti-politics. And But it is still political. And that's the world that we find ourselves in today with all these different shifts happening. And they directly correlate to all the things that were happening coming up to and through the Reformation. And again, it's all just playing out. And it really helps to be able to see these historical examples and how they played out then and being able to play that out now with the other pieces that we have and the other conditions that we have in our context. So that'll wrap up today's episode. The next episode, we'll get into another subject. I've done what I had scheduled for education broadly. And so now I've got economics, theology, and the printing press or technology, because that'll also be the internet. And so if you do have a preference in one of these three subjects that you really want to hear first, um, please feel free to get in contact with me since I have not recorded those as of yet or made that decision. And even when I do, I could rearrange the other two categories that are left. But that's what's coming up to kind of round out the rest of these parallels. These are a little longer, I would say, the economics and theology Uh, notes that I have are probably about twice as long as what I had for the education segment. And the printing press is slightly longer, at least. And so we've got quite a few more episodes coming. And I am already considering what to do next. I have, again, multiple plans. And it's just like when I came to the decisions for season two, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. I kind of hinted at a few things, got some feedback from you guys, the listeners, and made my decision went about this parallel from the Reformation to modern shifts going on now. And I am doing those stages currently. I'm looking at what to do next, what's season three going to look like, what type of content am I going to cover. I've got some rough ideas, and so I'm planning that out. And as I solidify some of those uh, views and goals that I have, I will relate them to you as well. So with that, thank you very much for listening. Thank you for the interactions that I have received. I have received a few requests for t-shirts. Now, as a reminder, you can get a free Our Foundations t-shirt. All you have to do is email me with specifically what you want and ideally as a thank you you will leave a rating or a view a comment some feedback something 
to interact with the podcast and say thank you for your free t-shirt. But you don't actually have to. So if you want a free shirt and you want to represent this podcast and be some marketing for me, feel free to. I would love that. Send me an email. And for everybody else who has still been listening and telling other people about this show, as well as just engaging with other people in these types of topics and encouraging critical thinking writ large, uh, way to go. Good job. And thank you for your participation with this show. I really appreciate you all, especially the patrons who are financially supporting. That is greatly appreciated. Thank you very much for that. It is very helpful. And anybody else that has any more interest in other things, there's a Twitter page. I've got my email address. I've got the website listed, and it's got multiple pages and resources there. There's a Patreon page that has extra stuff on it. So feel free to peruse over all these different links. They're all in the show notes, and I would love to have you engage and interact with any or all of these. So thank you very much for listening. I'll be back next time. I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundation's podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.